Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project that I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I think that part of music, writing it and making it cohesive, is a very special talent. And I was so busy running around the world and enjoying the fact that these songs that I was singing were specifically being written for me. You know, nobody else could sing them because I was singing them all. You know, a lot of the songs that were written for me, even, were things that I said. So it's not like I wasn't an intricate part of the compositions that I, I finally ended up singing. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm so, so excited to introduce my guest, Dionne Warwick, and I'm going to give her the proper introductions because I want the world to know how special she is. And so I will start and you'll enjoy it. Scintillating, soothing, and sensual best describe the familiar and legendary voice of five-time, that's right, five-time Grammy Award-winning music legend Dionne Warwick. And if you don't know her name, crawl out from your cave, <laughs> okay, because she is a cornerstone of American pop music, and she's amazing, and she's celebrating 50 years in this business as an international music icon and concert act still. She's had 75 charted hit songs and sold over, get this everybody, a hundred million records. Does anybody have a hundred million of anything? <laughs> no, they don't. A hundred million records. That's insane. It's incredible. It's luck. <laughs> uh, luck is when what? Preparation meets opportunity? That's true. Uh, she began singing professionally in 1961 after being discovered by a young songwriting team, Burt Bacharach and Hal David. She had her first hit in 1962 with Don't Make Me Over, and less than a decade later, she had released more than 18 consecutive top 100 singles including her classic Bacharach David recordings, Walk On By. Oh, I'm getting emotional again. Anyone who had a heart, message to Michael, promises, promises, which is one of the most, I don't even know how it's possible 
to sing that song. I don't know. Do you have to be. I don't even think you can be human to sing that song. Crazy. That's what you have to be. <laughs> uh, house is not a home. Alfie, say a little prayer. This girl's in love with you. I'll never fall in love again. Reach out for me and the theme from Valley of the Dolls. Together with Backrack and David, she accumulated more than 30 hit singles and close to 20 best-selling albums during their first decade together. She received her first Grammy Award in 1968 for the mega hit Do You Know the Way to San Jose and a second Grammy in 1970 for the best-selling album I'll Never Fall in Love Again. She became the first African-American solo female artist of her generation to win the prestigious award for Best Contemporary Female Vocalist Performance. This award was only presented to one other legend, Miss Ella Fitzgerald. Warwick's performance at the Olympia Theater in Paris skyrocketed her to international stardom, where she established herself as a major force in contemporary music and gained popularity among the European audience as well. In 1968, she became the first solo African-American artist to perform for the Queen of England at a Royal Command performance. She's been a pioneer and one of the first female artists to popularize classic movie themes with such songs as Alfie and the April Fools. We're going to talk a lot about where she's from and her beginnings in East Orange, New Jersey. But just suffice to say, if I can, I don't know of too many artists. You could count them on half a hand that have had the kind of success that she's had and it's an enormous accomplishment. What's totally amazing is when I sit across from this woman, there is not a wrinkle on her face. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know why. I mean, it, it doesn't even seem possible. I mean, just a, an incredibly beautiful, extraordinary woman. And please welcome my guest today, Dionne Warwick. Wow. This is a word. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy you're here. And what I'd love to do, if you don't mind, before we get into all the stuff with this new album, which I'm so excited to talk about, mm -hmm. is I want to go way, way back, way, way back. I want you to take me to New Jersey, the kind of neighborhood and the family you grew up in. And what was your first inspiration to think that you would want to be in the music business. Okay. Um, as you iterated, I was born and raised in East Orange, New Jersey. Um, I lived on a street called Sterling Street, which was, I describe it as virtually the United Nations. We had every race, color, creed, religion, you can imagine living on Sterling Street. And um, had two of the best parents that anybody could ever have. My daddy was my best friend. And my mommy, too. But daddy was more my best friend. Um, Middle-class family. Um, didn't realize that we were not wealthy because we were. We were wealthy with health and love and compassion and encouragement. And uh, we got our spankings, like everybody else did. Had a lot of sleepovers. Um, went to Lincoln School, grammar school, which now bears the name the Dionne Warwick Institute. <laughs> yeah, they, they dedicated the school to me. 
uh, now. It's about 11 years ago. Um, from Lincoln School, I went to a junior high school called Vernon L. Davey, which bears the name now of the Cicely Tyson, Tyson Performing Arts Center. I think that's what they're calling it. By the way, I'm renaming this office the Dion Warwick Management Office oh of Barricade. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, maybe I'll get my son a, a gig now. <laughs> um, from Vernon L. Davey, which we call BLD. Went to East Orange High School, where I graduated, and they named the auditorium at the high school in my name. Wow. So up to this point... Any thoughts of being in the music business? No. Nothing. It just I went through know. high school. You didn't know what you wanted to do? I, I knew that music was going to be a part of my life. I come from a, a music family. Family of, in my opinion, of which I respect, <laughs> uh, are some of the greatest singers that ever was blessed with the voice that God gave us all. And um, literally... Being in the industry never really entered my mind. I received a scholarship to go to the Hart College of Music in Hartford, Connecticut, as you pointed it out. And um, while in school, I was going back and forth from Hartford to New York. I arranged my classes so that I could have the Thursday, Friday, and Saturdays off to do background work and demonstration records. And that's where I met Bert first we were doing a background session now how did i'm sorry to interrupt but how do you know like you're how do you know you're even capable of doing background work like how did you know that you have the confidence to know that you could get that gig or even because obviously there's a lot of people who wanted those jobs how did you get it well we we had we did this um let me back up a bit my i come from a gospel singing family and they were performing at the Apollo Theater on a gospel fest. And my sister and I happened to be there visiting my mom, my aunts and uncles. And um, <laughs> this man ran into the backstage area needing voices to do a session. And of course, he wanted any one of the gospel groups to come and do the session. And they couldn't leave, of course. Oh, big mouth me. Said, okay, we'll do it. Not knowing what background was at all. And uh, he says, okay, tell me who we are. I said, my gospel group, we'll do it for you. So I called Carol, who's my cousin, and uh, my sister Didi and I. And I looked at Didi and I said, what's the background? <laughs> 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 she looked at me and said, I don't have a clue either. But, uh, you know, the guy asked us to be at a place called Savoy Records in Newark at a certain time and that we would be doing background for Sam the Man Taylor, saxophonist, and uh, Nappy Brown. Sam Man Taylor's song was Won't You Deliver Me? And Nappy Brown was uh, The Right Time Is The Night Time. I think everybody's heard that. Yeah. When we got there, uh, there was a guitar player. His name was Bill. I'll never forget him. And um, he says, and what do you gals do? I said, well, we sing. He says, yeah? He says, you do good harmony? I said, of course we do do good harmony. You know, and he says, okay, well, we'll find out. That's when we found out what background was. Just that ooh, ah, and that occasional yay, yay behind whoever's doing the leads. 
which we did all the time. So it was nothing new to us, which is how we discovered that we could do background work. And Bill was so impressed with us that he said he was going to kind of let New York know that he had a group of girls that could put some sting on some records for a lot of the producers. And he did that. And I got a call from Lieber and Stoller asking if we would come over and um, do, do some background for the Drifters. And I said, sure. So off to New York we went. We had Bert Backrack and a young man named Bob Hilliard, God rest his soul, had written this song called Mexican Divorce that we did the background for. And after meeting Bert, he asked if I would be interested in uh, continuing to do this. Um, I was the reader of the group at Red Music, and that uh, he would be writing songs with a new songwriting partner named Hal David. And would I be interested in doing demonstration records and background work on, the, on their recording, on the music they were writing? And I said, okay, fine, sounds good to me as long as it doesn't interfere with my education because my mother will kill both of us. <laughs> <laughs> so that now, was the agreement that we made. <laughs> you're obviously in college. You're somewhere between 18 and 21. Mm -hmm. You're a young, beautiful woman traveling to New York, the biggest city in the world, not exactly the safest city in the world, and you're just going and do, how do you have the resources to be able to go and do and be safe and put yourself up and go back and forth? I was in college. I was uh, eating five boxes of Kraft macaroni <laughs> and cheese a week, and that was my thing. So 20 cents each, uh, five for a dollar. Well, basically, it was, it was very easy traveling to New York at that time, and it was nowhere near the madness that we are enjoying or hearing about today. At that time, and it was three of us traveling at the same time, um, 75 cent on the 118 from Newark to New York City to Port of Authority. And from Port of Authority, we were four blocks from the studios that we were working in. Uh, if we didn't walk, we jumped in a cab and got to the studios. Um, and you come back the same day. Yeah, and we do our sessions, get on the bus and get back to Newark, take uh, the bus up. To East Orange and get off and go home. So when did you know in your heart, I can do this and I'm I'm not a background person. I can I can do this. I can do what the drifters did. I can do what these people do. I can be I don't want to say bigger or more successful, but I can I can compete. I never did. It's not what I really wanted to do. I'd be as satisfied to this very day to be standing behind someone singing in front of me, doing that ooh-ah and that occasional yay-yay still, you know. <laughs> I'm very good at that. <laughs> but um, I did a demonstration record that uh, Backrack David wrote for the Shirelles, and it was sent to Florence Greenberg at Scepter Records. And she did not want the song. She wanted the voice. And that was me. And it was a case of, um, if mommy, because she was the one that said, education first. I don't care what comes up, education first. And I totally agree with her. Um, if she would agree 
to allow me to do this. Um, I struck a deal with Backrack and David as my producers and um, made them promise me. It was a song that I did as a demo that I said, well, if I do record, this has got to be the song that I record first. And that song was called Make It Easy on Yourself. <laughs> I was on my way back into New York from school to do a session for them. And I happened to have the radio on in my little raggedy car. And out of my speakers and the radio came this gravelly voice of a male singing Make It Easy on Yourself, who just happened to be Jerry Butler. Wow. I was... But not too happy, let me put it that way, you know. So by the time I got to New York, I kind of confronted Mr. Backrack and Mr. David with them breaking their promise to me. How, I mean, how could you give the song that you said you were going to give to me and I'm listening to it on the radio by this man named Jerry Butler? And, and um, we kind of bantered back and forth, not too pleasantly either. And I finally said, I said, listen, the one thing you can never, ever do is try to make me something I'm not, so don't make me over. You know, get your act together. How David put pen to paper, came up with a little song called Don't Make Me Over. Happened to be my very first recording. And there is our, our history. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Now, what's really interesting about this, and sitting across from you, it's, I almost feel like you went against your instincts, because it seems to me that you're the kind of person that you don't cross, you don't lie to, and so you had a relationship, your first relationship with these guys, mm -hmm. they broke the foundation of the relationship in the very beginning and it's like i'm not to use this as an example which it's a bad example probably but like if you start dating a girl or a guy and you say hey listen we're going to be girlfriend and boyfriend and then the day after you say that you find out that they're sleeping with somebody else mm. you don't normally say okay i'll forget about that one Let's keep going out together because in your mind, you normally know that patterns continue. Mm -hmm. And once the red flag is up with something that happens, chances are it's going to happen again. But you 
in your heart, some reason knew that they would never do that again to you. Exactly. But you didn't have any power and they didn't have that much power. So how did you know that they would never cross you again? I made sure that based on the fact that they knew I was not going to stand for it. And I made it perfectly clear. I am who I am. You are who you are. And if you want this voice, that's the way it's got to be. Got it. So you did have inside enormous confidence in your voice. Absolutely. So back then in your teens and early 20s, you knew based on what you heard on the radio and what you heard from yourself, you knew even though you weren't caring whether you competed or not, you knew what you had. Yes, I did. I, mean, I knew what I had because of where I come from and the environment that I came from. As I said, I, I come from a family that undoubtedly had the finest voices that anyone would ever want to hear. And there's an old saying, the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree. And so I, I am a combination of my entire family. Couldn't go wrong as far as I was concerned. So you sign a contract with them. Did you, you normally when people sign a contract, they have attorneys looking over things these days. There's all these, you know, different eyes looking at things, how it's going to be, because every little thing, just one half a point. If you're selling 100 million records, one half a point could be the difference between millions and millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Who was guiding you and helping you when it came to signing these contracts? How did you know that you were going to be taken care of the way other artists were going to be taken care of? My daddy. Your daddy. That's right. I didn't sign anything. My daddy took care of that. He made sure that his little girl was going to be taken care of. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine those negotiations. Uh, he was pretty adamant about what he wanted for me, what could be in contracts, what could not be in them. Uh, basically, he rewrote the contract for me. People out there listening to this podcast, they think, oh, well, what's going to happen if I put out this video and it doesn't work? Or what if I do this song and it doesn't work? Or, or what if I do this stand-up act and it doesn't work or this album? It's like, do you think that Madonna puts out an album and she thinks, yeah, all 12 of these songs are going to be hit <laughs> songs? No, they're not. You know, they're, they're, you know that some aren't going to resonate. Right. Some are going to fail. But true to the book, The Long Tail, if you haven't read it, buy it, which states sometimes it doesn't matter. There can be a lot of songs that maybe don't sell that well, but if you collectively put them together, they can be equal to the biggest hit you ever have. Yeah, true. And so that's what's great about the way things work today. But let's face it, how often does somebody go in and the song that you were supposed to sing, which probably would have been a bigger hit had you sung it, <laughs> that was a hit song. Yeah. And so, and your one was, I mean, did you expect that or were you like in the situation where you just were blown away and... Let me tell you, um, after recording, Don't Make Me Over and 
couple of other songs that were, you know, when we went into studio, we did three, three songs usually in a three-hour period of time, and we usually had a half-hour overtime. Um, I happened to be coming from the grocery store, actually, <laughs> and had a radio on, and out of the radio came this boy saying, don't make me over. I pulled over and turned that radio up as loud as I could, all the windows down on the car. I said, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was the most exciting thing in the world. You know, all of a sudden, listening to me coming out of a radio. I mean, how can that be? Tell me how during the next few months and year before the next one came out, how your life changed? Well, I had the opportunity to travel a little bit. Um, my first job, actually, was in Florida, Miami, Florida, at a little club called The Night Beat at a hotel called the Sir John Hotel. God, this stuff is coming back to me. Um... And I knew about the Sir John Hotel because my dad was also, he was a poem reporter. And when they, they made the runs from New York to Miami or wherever they were going on the Silver Streak, he, that's where they, they were allowed to stay. You know, there's still that differentiation of black and white. Segregation was running high at the time. It was the 60s still. But the Sir John, <clears throat> excuse me, Sir John Hotel had a, had the Night Beat Hotel um, nightclub in it, and uh, that was my first job. So I got on an airplane for the first time, and flew to Miami, and I stayed there. And the owner of the hotel, of course, knew my daddy, because daddy stayed there. So I was, I was all at all times kind of being protected. You know, somebody always had their arm around me or their eye on me. So I felt safe at any given time. That's incredible. So so then tell me about how things started building and when you actually said to yourself, 100%, I'm never doing another day job again. I'm working in this profession. This is where my money comes from. And goodbye to everything else. I think it came after feeling the sting of not enjoying a hit record. Talk about that. Don't Make Me Over was um, ironically charted. It was, it was a pretty big hit record for me. And then I had two other records that came out, uh, a song called I Smiled Yesterday that everybody hated, <laughs> especially the jocks. They, wouldn't, they didn't want, what is she singing about? And then there was another song called This Empty Place, which I still love. And uh, they even think about redoing that one. At any rate, I had two almost turntable hits, they're called. And finally... I was uh, asked to do a show at the Brooklyn Fox for Murray the K, Christmas show. Murray the K, the famous DJ. That's right. 
And at that time, there was a little tune called Walk On By. And the other side of that was Any Old Time of the Day, which is the side that I chose. I love that song. Still do today. And Murray did a contest with it. He flipped it over. He played both sides of the record and had people calling in which side they wanted to hear and which side they thought would be the hit. Now, isn't that unusual? Because normally the B-side was the one that wasn't going to be the hit. Absolutely. And out of that came Walk On By. And from that day to this, never look back. Incredible. So tell me about the relationship with Burt Bacharach and Hal David, because he's working relationships. A lot of people in our audience, they work in different places all over the place, not just in the entertainment business. And you have these collaborations where sometimes what happens is you start off at a lower level and then you start doing great work. You're about eye level with the person. And then what happens is you start doing better work and better work and better work. And no matter how great their work is, you are the face and you are the voice of whatever it is you're doing. And pretty soon they're looking up at you saying, holy, holy Moses. She's bigger than we are right now. People know her more than us. How did you, how did you keep it together with them knowing that you went from a point where you were below them and slowly rose to the point where you were much bigger than they were, much more powerful than they were, yet you were having to collaborate together and create more things together. Were there ever were there ever issues or problems regarding that where things went down? No, there weren't. You know, um, I think more than anything else that we, we meaning Backrack and David and myself, we appreciate it what each of us brought to the table and literally depended upon each of us doing that. You know, Bert with some of those magnificent melodies that anyone would want to listen to, Hal David writing words that I still to this very day am in awe of. I think there's a greater lyricist that ever lived. And they both depended upon me to bring it to the listening ear. So we each had our part to play. And in fact, it was so funny because we finally became known in the industry as a triangle marriage that worked. <laughs> um, we became dear friends, and to to this day, you know, I miss how desperately I do. He was the glue that kept Bert and I from strangling each other most times. <laughs> but, you know, he was the, the calming force that kept us both on on a par with each other. So we, we never had any um, any problems whatsoever. So there was never a time where you woke up one morning and you're like, wow, let me write that down. God, that's a great verse I had in my head from this dream. And I have this little feeling about this music that's in my head right now that's coming to me. Mm. There was never a point in time where you said, hey, guys, you know, I have this these words that I'd like to do. And, and I have this kind of music that's been in my head the past few nights. 
can I tell you what this is and do it? Or you always, everybody always knew their place. No, I, you know, I, I, I think that part of music, writing it and, and, and making it cohesive is a very special talent. And I was so busy running around the world um, and enjoying the fact that these songs that I was singing were specifically being written for me. You know, nobody else could sing them, apparently, um, because I was singing them all. So it, it never entered my mind to become songwriter or... Um, a lot of the songs that were written for me, even, were things that I said. That how, so oh, that's a good idea. There's this a little song called "Whoever You Are, I Love You," from the play "Promises, Promises," and that song came from something I said to Hal. So it's not like I wasn't an intricate part of the. Um, the compositions that I, I finally ended up singing um, that I had nothing to do with the actual writing of them. And one of the things that I find fascinating is that, you know, you work so hard and when you're working on your craft so hard and then you're touring and going all over the world, how did you ever find time to have like a normal relationships? <laughs> I mean, especially knowing that you're, a hugely successful person. Most everyone you meet who even would want to go out with you most likely wouldn't be a person who was in the limelight that you were in. Mm. How did you handle and, and be able to navigate through the world knowing that you're, you're going from one place? Because I know for myself alone what it's like to keep something together. It's very difficult, yeah. and I'm here. How did you manage your personal life and your professional life to oh, be able to make things work? And it's, it wasn't easy. It was not easy, believe me. I um, met a young man named Bill Elliott, who was a drummer, part of a trio, and they were playing in um, clubs that we would go down and hang out in. And see, that's that's. That's one of the things I, I think and hope people uh, appreciate and realize about me. You know, I have, I'm a firm believer in being who I am. I don't want to be somebody else. I like me, first of all. So does everybody else. And, uh, well, that's a good thing, you know. And, you know, I, the, the friends that I had when I was in high school are still my friends. We still get together. Um, you know, we, it's that normal thing that I have that I feel I must sustain, you know, it's like, why would I want to do that? There's no reason for it. And, um, like I tell some of the kids, they, they look at you and say, oh, wow, 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 wow. And I let them know, I, you know, listen, I get up the same way you do my hair. It's staying all over my head. I run to the bathroom and brush my teeth as fast as I can. And I put on my pants one leg at a time, just <laughs> like you do. So, you know, look at me as a human being. That's what I want you to always think of me as. I am not that on that pedestal that most people are put on. 
You know, I'm, I, I go to the grocery store. And when people see me in the grocery store, what are you doing here? I got to eat, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So let's, um, let's look at me for who I really am. And I like being who I am. I really do. So it wasn't hard for me to navigate a relationship. You know, I fell in love. Um, he fell in love with me. And then all of a sudden I realized I lost something that I really value very much, and that's my freedom. You know, being able to go when I want to go and do what I wanted to do. And so I woke up one morning after we had got married. <laughs> it's not a, it's not funny, but it is funny. And I literally got on an airplane and went to Texas and crossed the border into Juarez. And the funny part of that whole thing is, is the first song that we did as background session for the Drifters was called Mexican Divorce. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I got. I got a Mexican divorce. And after I got my divorce, I got back on the plane, came back to New Jersey. And Bill said, where have you been? I said, I went to Mexico. He said, you went where? I said, I went to Mexico, and I got a divorce. He said, you got what? I said, I got a divorce. I don't want to be married anymore. And I really didn't. <laughs> he he kind of looked at me like I had 14 heads, of course. And um, so that was that. And he continued to pursue me. The power of no. Yeah. <laughs> it was like... Why don't you leave me alone? I tell you, I don't want to be married anymore. And I was leaving for, I was in San Francisco, where Bill actually had moved. I was playing drums in a little trio there. And I was working at the Fairmont Hotel. And he came to one of my shows and uh, took me to dinner after. And, you know, we started talking and talking and talking and talking. And he says, well, where are you going from here? So I'm going to Italy. So he says, okay, well, how long are you going to be there? And I told him I'll be there a couple of weeks. He says, okay. I was in Milan, and when I got off the plane, Bill was standing at the airport. Wow. It was, an, it was like, what are you doing here, you know? Uh, we got married again in Italy. And we're married for the next... Is it 12, 15 years? And out of that, two most incredible young men now are in my life, David and Damon. And um, it was one of the best things that ever resulted from our, our union. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for life is for the dreamers they have all to gain it's never quite over 
So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.